1 Samuel chapter 27. We'll be reading um, chapter 27 in the first two verses of chapter 28 together. This is God's holy, inspired word. Let's hear God's word together. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of me seeking, seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over. He and the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there, for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day, Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Malachites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from as old, as far as sure, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jaharimelites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore he shall always be my servant. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for even passages like this in the Bible that may seem to be perplexing. God, thank you for passages like this that reveal you, that reveal what it looks like to follow you, that God reveals the type of people that you choose. And God also reveals your mercy. God, I pray that you would give grace to me as I speak this morning. God, I am sick, and I pray for your, your healing and enabling power this morning. And God, I pray for everyone here that they would be able to listen undistracted in worship to you, God. God, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit even now to open up our hearts and minds, to speak to our hearts, to speak to our minds. Would you be with us, we pray. Bring your words to life anew today, in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, nobody here in his right mind likes to talk about his failures, right? I mean, who, who here loves to talk about their failures? Anybody? Anybody like to talk? Hey, I, I just love talking about my failures. Anybody like really bragging about those? How about if I was to write up your failures and kind of put them up on PowerPoint here or whatever we call this, pro presenter? Wouldn't you just love that if we just kind of put those up there for posterity and we kind of wrote about your failures? Nobody in their right mind would enjoy that. And we're not going to do that, by the way. Um, we don't do that in this church. But nobody likes to look up to failures either, do we? Nobody likes to, to have somebody that you look up to, somebody you count as a hero, or somebody who you, you look to as a leader to fail. And you become embarrassed, you know? I, I've been embarrassed at times, and I've looked up to people, and, I've, and then they've failed miserably, and I thought, oh my goodness, I can't believe I ever trusted in them. You ever felt that way before? You ever looked up to somebody who failed you and you were embarrassed or ashamed about them or maybe angry? You ever been angry? Man, I have. I've been angry before, looking up to a leader, maybe a pastor, a teacher, maybe, maybe somebody who's been my boss or somebody I, I, I thought they're a great model of what it looks like to follow God. And then they fail and then I can become angry or maybe disenchanted or maybe you become disheartened or lose hope for ourselves to succeed in the Christian walk. Have you ever been there before? You ever been in the place where you think if they failed, then what hope is there for me? You ever, you ever thought that? Sometimes we can become jaded or cynical. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're jaded and cynical this morning because your friends have left you and you looked up to them or your people that you respected have gone away from the faith or maybe they've failed and and you've become cynical or jaded or skeptical or critical. Is that you this morning? I've been there. <laughs> I've been cynical when I look at people and followers of Jesus Christ who preach the good news and talk about the truth. When they fail, I've been tempted to become cynical and say, well, what's the point of following God if they failed to, right? And when a leader fails, it it can leave us questioning God. It can leave us questioning the things that our hero, that our leader, that person we looked up to, it can leave us questioning those things as if somehow it were possible for objective truth to be changed because somebody failed. But is that really the case? You know, how are we to respond when a leader fails, when our heroes fall? You know, it can be because of bad theology, maybe sometimes, but not always. Sometimes it's actually more often the case that it's the problem is not with what a leader believed or what a follower of God believed, but with, it's with them and their own sinful desires and tendencies and their own failures. I wonder how many here, how many of you have been affected by a hero who has fallen, a leader who has failed, somebody you looked up to, respected, in, in the passage that we just read in the Old Testament, we just read about one of the, the greatest heroes in one sense of the Old Testament, David. He's, he's the man, right? You know, he's, he's the guy who, against all odds, was brave, and he took up the stone, and he slung it, and he slayed Goliath, and he took a sword, and he cut Goliath's head off, and he led Israel into battle, and he was victorious, and time after time, he was faithful, and he had integrity, and when he was tempted to to kill Saul, he didn't two times, and, and he was trusting in God all along, and 
This is David, the great giant killer, the great man after God's own heart. And yet he fails in this passage. You know, if, as, if you were a pastor or a preacher or a teacher in your right mind, you would not think, hey, you know what? I can't wait till we get to 1 Samuel 27. This is going to be great. It's going to be a passage that doesn't mention God once. It's great. It doesn't mention anything good about David. It just mentions some really messed up stuff. David lacks faith, and he goes away to Achish, to the Philistines. By the way, the same town where he had killed Goliath, where Goliath had come from, that town, and he went to that town, and he kind of ends up replacing Goliath's role as Achish's right-hand warrior. Nobody thinks this is a passage I really want to preach, you know. We weren't fighting over this one earlier. You know, Aaron and I weren't like, hey, you know what, when we come to 1 Samuel 27, I, I want the one that's really perplexing. Can I have that one? Can I have the one that doesn't seem to, like, have God in the picture? Can I have the one where our hero fails? You know, right after this high moment of faith? It's not the passage that's highlighted in children's Bible stories. I was talking to my kids about the passage last night, and they're like, that's not in those Bible stories we read. No, it's not. They're like, that was David? Yeah, David, yeah, he, he, um, he went over to the other side and was with the Philistines and kind of, and he was doing some raids. And not only that, he, he killed everybody and then he hid his sin and he lied about it. And that's how the passage ends, right? Isn't that, isn't that a happy story? What can we learn about that? What can we learn about ourselves? What can we learn about God? What can we learn from this passage, you know, I've never heard anybody preach a moralistic passage, you know, one of those be like David passages. You ever heard, heard a sermon like that, be like David? David's like this, be like David. I've never heard somebody preach a passage on a passage like this and say, okay, David, he went to the other side and he killed a bunch of people, women and children. Be like David, right? <laughs> you don't hear that. It'd be disturbing if you did. I'd encourage you to leave. If you go to a church and they say, you know, David went to the, the dark side and he killed everybody, be like David, run. I never heard anybody say, you know, David, he left, he was really the anointed king of Israel. He left the promised land. He left the place of blessing. He left the place where he could go and worship God, be with God's people, where he would receive an inheritance. He left all that God had called him to be over, and he left that, be like David. No, I've not heard that one either. You know, be like David, raid your enemies, kill everybody, take their stuff, because your people could really use it. Don't be like David. You know, maybe be like David. Lie about what you did to your enemies because they're your enemies and the ends justify the means, right? Is that what we're supposed to get from this passage? You know, if you, if you really were listening or reading the text, um, it's disconcerting what David does. You know, be like David and get things so messed up that it will really clearly only be God who can deliver you from your problems. Is that, is that what the lesson is we're supposed to learn? You know, nobody thinks, I can't wait for that story. Or maybe you do, and we can talk later. Um, it's a difficult passage. It's a perplexing passage. It's an embarrassing passage in one sense because it shows a man who was called and anointed by God, chosen by God, a man who was called a man after God's own heart, failing. It shows a flawed hero. This is not the hero David. Maybe it's the shrewd, cunning, crafty David, but it's not a hero. 
We're not meant to emulate David here, but it's a really instructive passage. We actually can learn something from this passage that seems to be God-less. This passage, it teaches us about ourselves. It teaches us about God, even though it never mentions God at all in this chapter. And you know what this passage shows us? It shows us something very important. It shows us that even a man after God's own heart fails. That's important for us to see, isn't it? Even a man after God's own heart fails. And and there are two primary ways we're going to see that David fails in this passage. And they're both related to, and they're kind of cued in. The the narrator gives us some, some hints here about seeing different ways that David fails. The first way that David fails is what he says to himself in his own heart, what he thinks to himself, leads to David's failure. And the second thing that we see is that David kind of justifies. He's thinking, hey, I'm going to kill everybody because that way Achish won't find out. So kind of the two ways that he fails are both connected to what he thinks. Man after God's own heart fails, and he fails by listening to himself and not God. That's how David fails. He fails by listening to himself and not God. Look at how the passage begins, the very first verse. It says that David said in his heart. You know, this passage comes on the heels of David sparing Saul's life. He had crept in, in in chapter 26, he had crept into the camp Um, undetected, 3,000 soldiers were there. He creeps in undetected. He has a chance to kill Saul. He's like, no, I'm not gonna do that. That's not why I'm here. We're gonna steal his sword. We're gonna take his, his, um, I'm sorry, his spear and his water jug. We're gonna take it. We're gonna take it away, but we're not gonna kill him. And he had to restrain uh, Abishai from killing him. And and he says, you know, we're not gonna do that because why? I trust in God, essentially, is what he was saying. He says, God, you know, I'm confident that no matter what happens, either Saul, he's going to die on his own, he's going to die in battle, or the Lord's going to sweep him away. And he says, so, you know what, I'm, I'm trusting in the fact that God rewards those who are faithful, and that's what I'm trusting in. And in verse Samuel 26, 23, he said, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. And you're thinking, this is wonderful, David. What a great high moment. He says, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. By the end of chapter 26, David is looking like an amazing hero, and he was at the end of chapter 26, but then immediately after, immediately after, he falls. You know, he hadn't just killed a giant once. He hadn't just weathered some storms of life. And he was faithful through many years. And he was faithful for 15 years on the run. David trusted in God. But even a man, after God's own heart, can fail because every man fails. Every woman fails too, by the way. And we'll use the term every man fails. is humanity. I'm not being chauvinistic. We have this chapter here, though, where we can understand, we can understand the pressures that David's facing. We can understand his reasoning. We can understand his, why he does what he does to some degree. But even so, it leaves you scratching your head and you're thinking, David, what were you thinking? Right? David, what are you thinking? You're going over to the Philistines? 
You're going over to the very town where the, the giant came from that you killed, that God sent you to kill. You're going back to the place where you, you went there the first time. It didn't work out so well for you, and you had to kind of hightail it out of there, and yet you're going back there now? What are you thinking, David? And then you see what he does. He goes and he slaughters all these tribes, and he raids these towns. You're like, David, how could you? And you lie, and you deceive. But you know, I can understand... You know, I can understand to some degree where David was at. He was probably just bone tired. He was probably just bone weary by this time in his life. You know, he was on the run for over 15 years probably from Saul. He was tired out after being on the run. He wanted to stop running, I'm sure. You ever, you ever been tired? You ever been in that place where you're like, I just want to stop running. I just want to, I don't want to take a breather. I just want to, I want to relax. I want to... God, can you just, can you give me, can you press pause on life for a moment, please? You know, I can understand he's worn out. Maybe you can relate to his weariness after being faithful for so many years, trusting God. And yet, to some degree, David doesn't see God's promises coming to fruition fully. He's believed God, and he even was championing the fact that God is faithful and he rewards the faithful and he, he rewards the righteous and yet David, he seems to be weary and he's been waiting. Can you relate? You ever, you ever been weary? You ever tired of waiting? You ever just thinking, can I just, can I just go somewhere else? Maybe that'll fix things. Maybe if I, if I, go someplace where nobody knows me, everything will be better. Maybe if I'm not around my family anymore and I can take a breather, maybe that will solve my problems. Maybe I need to escape my work. I needed to get away from that. Whatever you're thinking. Have you ever, you ever been that place where you, like David, just want to get out, get out? Get out from under the circumstances you're in? You ever been tempted to take matters into your own hands? You ever been tempted to to do things you know you shouldn't do? Because it seems like the only way out? Man, I sure have. You know, but how can David not see how God's protected him? I think that's what we're meant to see. When you get this place in the, in the Bible, you've just seen a miraculous protection of God. It said that God put 3,000 men asleep into a deep sleep so that David could walk into the middle of them. They were in kind of concentric circles around Saul. He walks all the way through 3,000 men, and then he, he doesn't get caught on the way in or the way out. And because God put them in deep sleep, God miraculously rescues David, and then immediately you're meant to see that, oh my goodness, at David's high point is when he fails. How can he not see God's hand to provide for him, to care for him, to sustain him, to protect him? In the desert all these years, you know, has, hasn't God demonstrated sustaining grace to David? That's what you're meant to see. You know, after all, it's harder to be sustained in the desert than when you're surrounded by all your friends when life is easy and David's been sustained for all these years in the desert and, and, and hiding and running. And God has sustained him and protected him in the midst of his enemies and he, from the very beginning, he enabled David to kill Goliath. He 
He enabled David to overcome enemies. He, enabled, he, he killed Nabal a couple chapters earlier when Nabal was against David and David was about to take vengeance on himself. God took vengeance on David and then he delivers David and all for David's good and surely God's able to sustain David and to keep him. Doesn't David see that? You ever been the place where, you know what, it's kind of hard to see that. God's done a lot of things and sustained you and cared for you and protected you and been with you all along and gotten you through the desert times and hard times and but sometimes it's hard to look back and see those things. So I can understand David. When he faltered, he went running. And he went running not to God. He went running to the very place he shouldn't have gone, to Philistine. Even though it was his enemy, David didn't listen to God in this chapter. And this is the very first chapter, and it's really notable. And if you were a good Jew, and you were reading this chapter, or you were hearing this chapter being read to you, and you're a good Jew, and you're following along, you would have seen that every chapter of Samuel so far mentions God numerous times. Talks about God, or Yahweh, the Lord, Adonai, so many times. This is the very first chapter in the whole book of Samuel where not once is God mentioned. Not even once. It's a stark reality here. It's, it seems to be a godless chapter. And if you're reading straight through, it's striking. At the very beginning, though, what does it begin with? It begins not with David hearing God's voice. It doesn't begin with David trusting in God. It doesn't begin with great faith. It begins really tellingly with David doing What? Look down your Bible. It's the very first. What does it say? What's David do? The very beginning. David, you think, to visit your version, he said it in his heart. He said to himself. He thought to himself. It depends on your version that you have. The, the literal language there is he spoke to his heart. He spoke to his own soul. You know, that is the beginning of a very troubling passage. David kept thinking to himself is kind of the, the tense. He keeps thinking to himself, someday Saul's going to get me. The best thing to do is for me to escape to the Philistines. Someday he's going to get me. And then, you know what it literally says? He says, now I will be swept away by the hands of Saul. And that's important because when was the last time he said swept away? He had just professed great faith in God sweeping. Maybe God will sweep Saul away. Now he says to himself, maybe I'll be swept away. Maybe Maybe I'm the one who's going to be swept away. It's an interesting choice of words there. Before he trusted God and knew that Saul would be swept away, now he talks to himself and fears that he'll be swept away. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been caught up in your own, your own heart talk? Have you ever talked to yourself and, and meditated on what's not true and what's wrong what's not good, what's not lovely, what's not of good report. You ever, you ever done that where you're so aware of the circumstances and situations and things around you where all you can see is all the things going on and, and, and you forget something and you forget God and you become functionally godless like this chapter is in a sense, like David in this chapter is in a sense. He doesn't seek God here. He has the priest, the only remaining priest of Israel is with him, and they've got the ephod, the place where he can, he can go to the priest, the priest would seek God on David's behalf, and he could hear from God. He doesn't do that in this passage. That's really odd. 
All the other times, David seeks God. He, seeks, he goes to the priest. He seeks God on his own. He prays. David's not praying. He's not seeking God. What is he doing? He's, he's listening to his own self-talk. And that's dangerous. You ever been there, though? You ever given into fears like that? You ever just listened to your own self-talk? You ever, you ever just told yourself the reality of the situation and forgot the reality of who God is and where God is? You know, David listens to his fears of being swept away, and then David, he goes over to the other side. He defects, and it's kind of like the language of a traitor. It says he goes over. He crosses over. He crosses over to Philistia, he, and then our hearts sink a little. It's, it's, it's as if, you know, Han Solo would have gone over to the dark side, or Luke Skywalker would have gone over the dark side, and it would have been, what do we do now, you know? Um, and it's as if David is going over. He's going over to the Philistines. Our hero's gone to the enemy. He's acting like a traitor. And you shake your head and you think, you know better. What are you doing? You're, it's meant to have that effect on you, by the way. It's meant to have that effect. They didn't, they didn't have movies back in those days. But, um, but, but as this account was read years later, I can imagine the shock of a good Jewish person, a good Israelite saying, oh my goodness, he went over to the other side. He crossed over. He knows better. Oy vey. But you know, that's what happens when God's people listen to themselves and, and don't listen to his voice. That's what happens when you and I listen to ourselves. We don't listen to his voice. What happens when we're guided by our own thoughts and our own feelings and our own perception, we shape our own reality and it leads us astray and it goes badly. And the reason it goes badly, it, it, it's because David was thinking or speaking in his own heart rather than remembering and thinking about what God had done and what God had said and who God said he was and who God had promised that he would be as the king. And he lost perspective what God had just done. He lost perspective and he failed to see that God had just rescued him out of the hard times Maybe you've come out of a hard time in your life, and right now, you're tempted to think, you know what, I want to give up. I'm just done. God, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm not wanting more hard times. Instead of doing what you should do is say, God, thank you. That was you. And because you sustained me, I feel like giving up. I'm weary, but God, you know what? I'm going to rest in you, and I'm going to trust in that you are strong. You are able. Where, where I'm unable, God, you are able. So God, I put my trust in you and not in myself. Instead, David looks inward for help in himself. And that's never where we're called to look. We're, well, you know what we're called to look when we're weak, when we're down, when we're low, when we're feeling empty? That's meant to make us look outside of ourselves. It's meant to make us look up to God, to be filled with the water of life, to receive Jesus, the bread of life, to to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit, to turn to Him. It's meant for us to turn away from our self-sufficiency instead of doing what we see here we're all tempted to do. And by the way, if you think that you're better than David, oh man, watch out. It's when you think you're doing really well, right on the heels of your success, when we're often most tempted to be self-sufficient like David was here. It shows how important it is for us to speak the word of truth to ourselves from God's objectively true word. Shows how important it is to talk to our own hearts and how critical the content is of what we think on and talk to ourselves about. 
Are we telling ourselves true things about God? Are you telling yourself true things about God? Are you, and if you can't, are you going to other people, maybe in the church, in your small group? And by the way, that's why we say that, you know, we're not just a church, we're, we're small groups in this church. We, we encourage you to be a part of a small group because that's where, if, when we get to the place, sometimes we are like, we can't see, we lose, we lost perspective. We, we need other people to say, hey, you know what, I, I know the right things, but right now I just need to hear them. Would you help me get perspective? I, I need to know the truth of God right now. I, my head is just so loud, and I need to hear God's word. Could you help me? You know, that's why we have a church. That's why we need each other, why we have each other, why God's given us this benefit of other believers who have the Holy Spirit. You know, are you listening to God's word? Or are you trusting in the only reliable rock and anchor? Or are you looking at circumstances and situations around you and failing to see God? Boy, so often I do that. So often I get swayed when, when things aren't as successful as I want them to be or things don't seem to have the effect that I want them to have or when people don't respond the way I think they should respond and, and I fail to see that God is greater than me and than all of us and he's at work and he loves us and he's called us and he's chosen us and he's sustained us and his grace has been more than sufficient for us. You know, this mantle of leading not only David's 600 men, but all their families, we find out the detail, and their households in this state of perpetual running. It must have been daunting. Think about that. You're David, and you're like, oh my gosh, we've been in all these caves, and I'm tired of that. We've got 600 men. But now you find out that not only that, he's got his family with him, and they all probably have a lot of their families with them. You may want to settle down and rest. I get that. I can understand being tired and wanting to rest. You know what? He probably wanted some certainty, something to be settled. You ever been there? You ever want certainty? You ever want to be settled? You ever want clarity? (laughs) If so, you can learn something from David. He probably wanted clarity and certainty. He probably wanted things to be spelled out, but he probably wanted some comfort, which is understandable, right? My goodness. It's not wrong to want a little rest. But it can't be wrong if we aren't listening to God's voice through his word, if we're not paying attention to the counsel of God's word through his people, if we're pursuing our own rest or clarity or certainty above pleasing God where he's placed us. You know, those things could be dangerous idols, certainty, clarity, rest. You know, God is often more about the journey and the process as we follow him and trust in him than he is about everything being spelled out for us. I don't know of a time in my life when I've had everything really certain. I, I've had the mirage of certainty and clarity, and, but that's only a mirage. See, see, things are certain to God, but they're never, we really never know what's going on. But we can be certain that God is certain. That's our certainty. When we search for certainty outside of God, it's dangerous. And so David goes outside of where God calls him. He leaves the land where God promised to make him king. He leaves a place where he had an inheritance, starts listening to himself. He goes away. And here's the funny thing. David's plan seems to work. He says, hey, if I go away, Saul won't know about me, and he'll give up. And so Saul, in verse 4, he says that, you know, Saul finds out that he's going away to the Philistines, and so Saul gives up. So David's plan works. So isn't that good, right? No. You know, sometimes just because our plans work out, because doors seem to be open and things go smoothly, it doesn't mean it's God. So don't evaluate things that way. 
hey, you know what? Saul's not following me anymore. Now, no, David, you've left the people of God. You've left the place of God. You've left the promised land. You've left the, the place where he's called you to an inheritance. That's, that's never good in the Bible. He's gone away from God's people to God's enemies. It worked, but it wasn't good. Don't think because things work out that that's good. David even had such favor with Achish that when he asked him for a city, he says he gave him a country town to live in, you know. He says, hey, why don't you go out in the country? You're about 25 miles away, so he's got some space. You can spread out. He's got some land there. He goes out into the country, into Ziklag, and he's given his own town, right? And so things working out pretty good for him. And he's even, he's even able to provide for everybody. But here's some bad things we find out. You know, it's nice. David finally catches a break, Right? Here's some even worse things we find out. If you look down your Bible, it tells us some stories here. He says he began to, to do some things that were wrong. David and his men, you know, in one sense, David could, and he was, used by God as an agent of God's judgment on the people he ends up killing. But he doesn't do it in the way that God called his people to do it. And, and it doesn't seem like his motives were there either. And his men, David and his men, they became like bandits and robbers. They raided villagers, villages for their loot. They killed the inhabitants, but then here's the problem. They didn't wipe them out and, and kill all the animals and leave it there, and then they didn't do it for God's glory. They did it to get stuff. They did it for the loot, for the bounty. And then he kills all the women and everybody there, and he doesn't do it for some noble reason, to honor God, to wipe out sin, he does it so that he won't be found out. His motives were bad. His motives were wrong. So how in the world did David get there? The second lesson that we learn from David is that a man fails by justifying himself. A man or woman fails by justifying himself. Man, so often I am tempted to justify my behavior, my sin, what I do. You ever, you ever been there? You ever, you ever tempted to justify your wrong actions? You ever try to convince yourself that you were in the right when you knew you were wrong? You ever done that? I think you have. And if you're not aware of it, then ask somebody around you, hey, you ever think I justify myself? Honey, when I get angry at you, do you ever think I justify my anger? But be prepared for your wife's answer. <laughs> you know, hey kids, um, have I ever justified being impatient with you because you did something wrong? Have I ever justified my impatience with your disobedience? Have I ever done that, done that before? Or kids, you know, hey, have you ever justified, but he hit me first? You ever done that? You ever justified your own behavior by somebody else's behavior and what somebody else did? You know, um, it's always dangerous when we're justifying ourselves. You know, I've sinned. I've, I've convinced myself that it wasn't really sin because I either really wanted something or because I saw no way out. And I fooled myself, kind of. How about you? You ever lied and justified it because, you know, the outcome justified the lie? Because if they found out something, then, then they'd really think you're bad and they wouldn't like Christians, and so you even justified your lie because you were, didn't want people to think Christians were liars? You ever done something like that? 
Maybe it's more subtle for you. Maybe you've been angry, you've been bitter. Maybe you're currently angry or bitter or resentful and you justify it because somebody else may have really truly sinned against you and they did. But that doesn't justify it. Our bitterness, our anger, our resentment. We fail by justifying ourselves. You know, in some sense, it was God's will, and, and God, we see that God was using David in some sense to purge the land, as he told Jude, uh, Joshua to, to purge the land of all of these enemies of Israel, um, to wipe them out, but they weren't to keep anything. They were to do it for God's glory, and David did it here for dishonest gain. Maybe he consoled his conscience with the fact that people he raided weren't Israelites, they were enemies of Israel. Maybe he justified himself that way. He's not fighting for God's honor, though. He's fighting for profit. Maybe he justified and said, hey, these 600 men and all their families, I've got to provide for them somehow. So, hey, these are enemies. It's not wrong to go and kill enemies and lie to Achish. Because after all, Achish is a bad guy too. So it's not wrong to lie to him. Maybe that's how David justified it. Actually, that is how David justified it. But is that a way for a man after God's own heart to be acting? I don't think so. He wasn't just warring and robbing. He was brutally killing everybody because he was afraid of being found out. He wasn't motivated by faith. He was motivated by fear. Doesn't make it right. We can justify, though. We can hide our sins. We can convince ourselves that what we're doing is okay because ultimately the ends are justifying the means, right? You ever, you ever done that? You ever lied on your taxes because you think, well, I've got to provide for my family and that'll leave more money in the bank so I can pay the bills. But we can see what the narrator's trying to show us because he writes of the outcome. The outcome of David's listening to himself. Look down your Bibles. The outcome of his self-justification is that he gets into even deeper trouble He gets into even deeper trouble. It doesn't get him out of trouble. It gets him into even deeper trouble. You know, it says, in some sense, it shows, I guess, the shrewd, the cunning, the craftiness of David. And so you think, oh, David's really smart. He's really shrewd. He's really crafty. But then he was able to get the Philistines to like him and to trust him. And we can see that he fooled old Achish into thinking that David was an utter stench to his people, it says. And Achish thought, you know what, they really hate him. David's going to be my servant forever. David, he came out on top, right? He fooled Achish. Isn't that really great? But look in in verses 1 and 2, the author writes, he says, In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight, uh uh-oh, against Israel. And Achish said to David, alarm bells should be going off. He says, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army against Israel. Israel's designated king is now in the place where he's going to be forced to fight against his own people. To be a traitor and kill his own people. That's the position he's potentially in now. And David said to Achish, very well, you should know what your servant can do. It's kind of like him, him saying, all right, I'll show you what I can do. It's kind of bragging. David, he's saying to David, hey, you're going to go out and fight the battle with me. You're going to go against Israel. And David says, all right, I'll show you what I can do. And David said, very well, you're going to be my bodyguard forever. You're going to be my slave forever. You're going to be my, the head of, you're going to be guarding my head forever, which is kind of the same phraseology was used with Goliath. He's kind of the guard of, of Gath. And you think, oh no, 
what in the world? How's David going to get out of this one? And, and the, the narrator intentionally stops the story and interrupts it and, and with next week's story, verse 20, chapter 28. The rest of it is about Saul, but it, it, it picks back up in 29. And he, he stops it on purpose. He stops the story on purpose. It's meant to be an abrupt stop so that we see, oh my goodness, what will David do? He's gotten himself into even deeper yogurt. You know the final thing we learned from this passage? It's not from the passage directly, per se, but it's from looking at the passage in the whole context of First and Second Samuel. Because that's what, when we, when we come to passages that are difficult like this, we need to look at the rest of the book of Samuel. We need to look at the context that Samuel is actually not two books to begin with. It was one book. Um, and we need to look at the context that a passage is in to be able to interpret that passage rightly and accurately. And so we see, really, this passage is showing that a man who fails, what does it show us in the context? A man who fails is still greatly used by God. That's, that's what it shows us. A man who fails is greatly used by God. David fails here, but, and he was a man, after all. Just like you and me, he was, a, he was human. This great hero, he fell. Just like our heroes, our leaders will fall. Just like you fall, just like I fall. <laughs> Before you throw stones at your heroes and your leaders, first look at the log in your own eye. Say, wait a minute. How have I been a hypocrite today? How have I failed? How have I fallen? It's just nobody else knows about it. Nobody else sees the deepest, darkest sins in my heart. And yet I take faith from a passage like this that David was a man who fails, and yet he's still greatly used by God. That's good news. This didn't stop God's plans for David. David was a murderer. It didn't stop God's plans for David. Instead of making it lose, us lose heart, I think it's meant to, to give us hope but not a hope in David, not a hope in a leader, not a hope in a hero, not a hope in ourselves. It, it's meant for us to say, if David failed, then where is our hope? And for us to cry out and say, if David, even David failed, then where's the hope for us? Right? Not a hope in David or hope in ourselves that we can do better than David because you know, you're, you're not that figure in redemptive history like David. David, eventually he went on to be crowned the king of Israel. God still carried out his plans through him. He ended up taking Jerusalem from the Jebusites and establishing the place, place where Israel would build the temple. And God unites all the tribes of Israel under David. And through David, he brings about, through David's sin later, Solomon. And through Solomon, the temple is built. And then through David's line, he brings about the salvation of the entire world in all creation. God, God wasn't done with David because he failed. You know, seeing David's weakness, it helps us see that even the great heroes fail. So we need a salvation that doesn't rest in ourselves. We need a salvation that doesn't rest in people, doesn't rest in leaders, doesn't rest in people we respect and look up to, that 
you're not going to be thwarted. Your faith is not going to tremble when somebody you like or respect or know or look up to, when they stumble and fall, we need a faith that's more secure than that, that doesn't rest in those people and doesn't rest in ourselves. You know, through David, God established this the everlasting dynasty that culminated in the ultimate king, Jesus, being born, who was called what? The son of David. Seeing David's weaknesses helps us see the amazing grace and mercy of God. That God would continue to use such a bloody, sinful man as David. I remember when I was younger, I saw a tract that was put out by this atheist society. Um, I was reading about it again the other day. <laughs> I remembered the pictures that were in that tract, and I can't remember the exact language in it, but on the tract there were various portraits they were shown like mug shots of, of heroes in the Bible. And they had a, a, a drawing of a portrait of Abraham. And it was something along the lines of, here's a coward who sacrificed the honor of his wife to save his own skin. You know, and then it lists the places in the Bible that shows where Abraham was weak. And yet Abraham was still called a friend of God. And something to the lines of the tract says, you know, what kind of God would befriend so dishonorable man? Then beneath Jacob's picture, it labels him rightly a deceiver and a liar and a cheat. And it calls into question the kind of God, what kind of God would make Jacob the prince of his people. Then there was a picture of Moses, and next to the picture of Moses, that was the label murderer. Because that was the beginning of what Moses' great acts were. He murdered an Egyptian, and yet God picked him to lead his people to deliverance and And then David seems to be the worst of all, the most egregious of all these characters. And beneath the pictures of David, like the other ones, he was a polygamist like those before him. He was an adulterer. And then he used his position to force Bathsheba to to be with him and then plotted to have her husband Uriah killed to cover it up. And it said something like, how can a man like this be called a man after God's own heart? What kind of of God picks leaders like this. Why would anybody serve a God like this? And it was meant to detract or to show that somehow there's a problem with God. What do we do when we hear things like that? Those are real objections, right? How do we answer them? I think what we have to say, what we can honestly say is what the Bible does, it doesn't gloss over those things. It says, yes, that's true. It is true, David was a murderous, adulterous, polygamist who did all kinds of terrible things. Moses was a murderer. Abraham, he sold out on his his wife for his own reputation to save his own skin. Jacob, he was a liar, a deceiver, a cheat. Peter denied Jesus three times, and so have I. doesn't discredit God. What it does, the Bible's honest about these things. Why? It's not a fairy tale. It actually gives me more hope that the Bible is true and accurate because, you know, a story that wants to prop up heroes, it paints them with this glossy picture of somehow they are so noble and clean and pure and they've never done anything wrong. And I like the quote that um, somebody here posted from one of the guys commenting on this and he says, it's, like, it's not like God wants to see his heroes, you know, we're supposed to see them dipped in Clorox and that they're perfect. 
we're given the raw, unvarnished truth about mankind. That's good. You know why it's good? Because I'm right there with them. There we go. <laughs> you know, the reason why we're shown all of those flaws and things is that we can see that only God ultimately is trustworthy. The Bible is all about our need to trust in God alone. It's about God calling a people to himself, not because they had any worth. God didn't call any of those people because they had worth in and of themselves. He called them because of his great grace and mercy, not to demonstrate how great they were, but to demonstrate how great he is. That's why God called you and me. If you think you're any better, look out. The seeds of all those sins lie in my heart. I am capable of all those same sins. All of us are. And if you think you're doing well, be careful lest you fall. And let it point us to the great grace and mercy of God. The Bible is a story of people like you and I being redeemed by the grace and mercy of God. And God using flawed, failed, sinful people anyway. That is good news. The Bible is all about God who justifies the ungodly. God who is merciful to the unmerciful. God who is faithful to the unfaithful. God who forgives sinners by giving up his only son. It's about God conquering sin through his son dying and defeating sin and paying the price fully and being raised up again victorious. It's all about one true hero and it's not David. It's about Jesus Christ. He is the only one that we can look to who has never failed, who will never fail. That's the only one in whom our hope is. And the whole Bible doesn't let anybody else be our hero because only one person is meant to be. That's the one who's rescued us from all of our failings. In the beginning of this text, I, I said that the text shows us that even a man after God's heart fails, and that's right, but that wasn't really the whole main idea. I only gave you part of the main idea. I told you the main idea was that Even a man after God's heart fails. But that's not all. When we step back, when we look at the passage in the context of all of 1 and 2 Samuel, we see this bigger picture that even a man after God's own heart fails. Yes, that's true. But God's grace is greater than any man or his failures. There should be shouting happening. Even a man after God's own heart fails. Even a woman after God's own heart fails. But God's grace is greater than any man or woman in their failures. That's really good news. This story points us to marvel at God and who he is and his grace that he justifies the ungodly. It, it points us to have humility. That take heed. If you think you're doing really well, you're not the anointed one of God. You too can fall if you let, listen to yourself, if you listen to your own self-talk and get your eyes off of God and on your circumstances and listen to the circumstances. You need to rely on God. It's meant to, to show us that it's easy to fail, that we need truth of God's word. It exhorts us not to listen to ourselves but to look to the words of God and his promises and to act only on faith in him. 
It points us to trust in the Lord with all our hearts, to not lean on our understanding, but in all our ways, acknowledge him, and he's the one who'll make our path straight, and we've got to trust him with that. You know, in Proverbs 3, 8, it tells, you, it tells us, he says, don't be wise in your own eyes, and that's what David was here. But fear the Lord and turn away from evil, and here's the promise. Maybe you need healing in your flesh. Maybe you need refreshment in your bones. It says, don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Why do we need this passage? Because we need a passage like this to say, turn back to God. He's the one who redeems. Come back to God and his people and his word again. He is faithful. God can and will use you. Maybe you fail like David. He's the God who uses failures. Because you fail doesn't mean that God's finished with you yet either. He's a merciful God. Turn back to him. Come into his presence. Don't run away from him. There's no glossing over it, no minimizing failure. In the end, though, what is stamped over David's life is not the word failure. What's stamped over David's life is redeemed, chosen one of God. You and I fail, and it might be completely understandable, but it's not good. Let's own that. Let's not gloss over it. There's no minimizing it. In the end, though, Here's our hope for all who trust in Jesus Christ and by faith throw themselves in the mercy of God. What's stamped over our lives is not the word failure either. What's stamped over our lives is redeemed, chosen one of God, friend of God. How can we have those titles? Son and daughter of God, saints in Jesus Christ, chosen, righteous, faithful. We're stamped with that because all of our sins were stamped on Jesus. That's our hope. That's why we need passages like this to turn us to him. Amen? Well, let's pray and go ahead and have the band come up and we'll, we'll sing together.